All right, hey, turn your Bible open to get dazzled. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Luke 5, 27. We are in a series called In the Public Eye where we are taking a look at Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he's come to do in the world and in our lives. And uh, we've been asking, what does it mean to relate to Jesus? What does it mean to be his follower? What does he come to do? And in this, this last few stories in Luke, we've been seeing how Jesus is beginning now to gather some people to himself. He's beginning to gather followers or disciples or learners in his way. And he is um, gathering these folks. And so today we're going to really see this story that shows us kind of these three things. First of all, what it means to be Jesus' follower, how it is that he's called us into his mission, and how we actually can find the ability uh, to join him in both. So let's take a look at uh, chapter 5, verse 27 in Luke with me this morning. Read along. Um, And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen for you here. Um, After this, and by the way, the after this is a pretty interesting story, right? Last week, Pastor Dave spoke about Jesus' cleansing of a leper, and then this guy came to him paralyzed, and Jesus says, uh, your sins are forgiven, and then tells him to get up and walk, and he does. So, no big deal. After that, uh, after that, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And, and Levi made him a great feast in his, out, his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is God's word. Um, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are a God who communicates, who reveals yourself. And in this story, we find um, so much about the God that you are and what it means to relate to you. So help us today to understand, believe, and live it out. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, the first thing... What I want to show you here this morning is what it means to be uh, a Jesus follower. Okay, so the first thing that we see is after, after this last story, he sees this tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax booth. And Levi, also known as Matthew, he's the sa- same guy as Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, who ends up writing the Gospel of Matthew. In the first century, he often had two names, and this is a normal thing. He's Le- Levi and Luke, and Matthew and Matthew. And he's a tax collector. He's, he's one of the most despised people in his society, right? So right off the bat, we know that Jesus is relating to this guy who is a lowlife. This is not a guy that you are Facebook friends with. This is, in fact, a guy that you block, right, on Instagram. when he wants, he, You don't hang out with a Levi. And to be a tax collector meant that you were the kind of person who had great ambition, but it was an ambition to pilfer money off of your fellow countrymen, to get rich, supporting a really unjust system. And basically, being a tax collector in the first century worked something like this. You would lease the right to be a tax agent from the massive superpower, Rome, 
or one of its subsidiary puppet dictators, the Herods, and you would uh, get this right to charge their taxes, and with that came the privilege of adding whatever surcharge you wanted to add. So, have you ever been to a meal and you realize at the end of it that it is a cash-only kind of place? And there happens to be a conveniently located cash machine that looks like R2-D2, and it's just, it doesn't look right, and it doesn't belong to your bank branch, and then you go to get your 20 bucks or 40 bucks or however much, and then by the time you're done, there's like this $15 surcharge, right? Or it feels like that, it was probably only five or something like that, and you're just like, what in the world? They got me. Um, they saw me coming and going. It was like that, but on steroids, okay? See, Levi is this low-level tax collector, and he is uh, somebody that Jesus sees at his booth, with, which most likely means that he charged a toll. As people moved from region to region within Palestine, there were tax collectors that charged you on entering a new region. Okay, So how many of you have been to the East Coast and have, had, have driven on toll roads? Yeah, who thought of that brilliant idea, right? How inconvenient you got to stop every once in a while. See, there at least, it builds better roads. There, here in first century Palestine, all it got you was a rich tax collector, okay? So imagine this kind of situation. And to make things worse, tax collectors were collaborators with Rome. They were enemy collabora- collaborators. And so along with that, they were extremely corrupt. These were not good people, They had made friends with the corrupt Roman Empire, and uh, they would be viewed something like a current-day pimp, right? Like that level of social um, uh, kind of notoriety, right? Instead of selling people, though, they sold out their own heritage. They sold out their countrymen and their community for cash, to the, to the Romans and the Herods. And they were traitors politically and morally. They were really just the scum of the earth. You're starting to get the picture, right? That's who we're dealing with in Levi. And if you thought that that was kind of sketchy, look at what happens next. Jesus says to Levi, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, uh, Jesus wants Levi as a disciple. This is a pretty astonishing thing. Levi, the tax collector, is getting picked up by Jesus to be on his team. You see, your disciple kind of uh, was the person who would either increase your reputation or decrease it, right? And so to collect a Levi onto your team was to kind of take a first-round draft pick that everybody else would, would definitely reject. And so um, here he is, and he wants him. He wants him as his disciple. He doesn't want him as his tax collector. He wants him as his disciple, which means he wants him to have a new identity and a new life. But it's this very scandalous invitation. And so Luke is making a point here that not only is Jesus one who can forgive sins and cleanse lepers, but he is the kind of person who is looking to associate with the Levi's of the world. Jesus is the kind of person who wants to gather to himself the most deeply flawed people you can find. At least if they're willing to trust him and follow him. And so the first thing we see, Jesus says, follow me. The first thing that means to be a disciple here is that you know Jesus has called you. See, there's no mistaking whether or not you're a disciple. 
You, you either know Jesus has called you to follow him, or you, you just don't know that. It, you know he's called you to be with him. See, Levi hears a distinct message. Follow me. It's not an intellectual set of ideas that he thinks he might agree with. It's not even a moral code that he thinks, yeah, I think I'll adopt that into my life. Nor is it even just a community that he says, I like those people. I'm attracted to that bunch. No, in fact, he hears a person. Right? He comes up against an actual person who invites him, who calls him and summons him to a relationship that's characterized by allegiance and trust. And so knowing you've been called by a person is actually a hallmark of being a disciple. See, that's what it means to be a Christian, friends. That, that you trust Jesus as Lord means to follow his call on your life. Are you with me? So um, something happens to you when you become a parent. You, you learn what tired really means. You know what I mean? Like, as a college student, you kind of think, oh, I'm tired, right? And then some other older people roll their eyes at you. Like, I can't figure that out. I am really tired. And then you have a baby. And then that tired grows exponentially. And then you have another one. And then you realize how deep tired can be. And then you have a third one. And then at this point, you're just kind of blown away. And so you might as well just keep having them. Or, I don't know. So that's what people tell me, though I think I've decided no. Um, I don't know. That's up to God. But anyways, here's the thing. Tired doesn't add, it multiplies, right? And so usually my pattern uh, with my wife when we would have our babies is I would just figure that Lauren was on call all day long. Really, like from the time I left, from the time I got home from work, uh, she was on call dealing with terrorist negotiations, hazmat problems. I mean, that's that's a tall order in her life. And so I figured that I'm on call at night. And so when the baby wakes up, I'll take it. I'll change the diaper, rock, whatever. And, you know, get her all happy and fed. um, But in between those actions, by the time we had Eloise a year ago, I, I, all I was good for was transport. Like I could get up and bring a baby and then I was out cold in between that. Now the problem is when you are depending on someone who is unconscious, they're of no help to you, right? Now, um, and you're constantly saying to somebody like, hey, would you please get me a burp cloth? Or hey, could, could we get a clean diaper? Or could you bring me a glass of water? Or whatever that is. And all she would get was just snoring, right? Um, or just verbal nonsense from me. So she would be talking to me, having these conversations with me late at night. And finally, Lauren started writing down all the weird stuff I said to her. See, I had no clue that I was engaging in a conversation whatsoever. And so I would say things like, yeah, I talked to the Russians and they can't find the plans. Like, I don't know any Russians. Like, or like, just charge it to the room. I forgot my wallet. I would never say that. You know, and she would wake me up the next day and she'd say, look what you said last night. And like, I have no idea that that was happening. And, um, you know, I just wasn't awake. It wasn't a conversation I knew was happening. But here's the thing. When you respond to Jesus' call on your life, it's like waking up for the first time. It's like actually having a conversation and knowing you're having it. It's not like the sleep conversation that I would have a, a year ago. And so... Um, some of you are here today and you've been coming to church. And maybe you're in a community group, maybe you're even on a serving team and you are just sleep-talking when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. 
That there's no sense of a call on your life. That you haven't sensed a call on your heart from a person who is Lord of all. You haven't had a sense on your heart that you really trust Him and you long to know Him and resemble Him. So you just kind of sleep talking your way through Christianity. And Jesus says in John 10, 27, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. This is what Jesus says. My sheep, my followers, they know me. Right? I, I, they know my voice. I know them. Right? They follow my voice. Is that you today? Do you know the voice of Jesus? Are you a disciple? Has he called you to be with him? To be one of his followers? And how, how do you know the voice of Jesus? It takes some effort, right? Like, we have to get to know in what he reveals in his scriptures, what his voice is like. And the Spirit of God amplifies that into the particularities of our day-to-day life. It's a voice that summons us to following Not just a set of ideas or a code of conduct or just a group of like-minded people, but to the living God who is Lord of all and the one who rescues us from sin and gives us life. You see, that's what it means to know the call of God on your life. And the second thing we, we learn from Levi's story about being a disciple is that being a disciple creates a new priority in your life. See, Levi leaves everything and follows Jesus. See, to leave everything meant that he had a very concrete departure from his life as a, as a first-rate extortionist, right? He, he leaves a lucrative career. Uh, he leaves behind his means to get wages. He leaves behind his partnership with the world's superpower. I mean, think about that. What, what would it look like for you to be willing to leave your place of security, What what would it be like to be honest in a job environment where your your boss is crooked and to to do the right thing might actually cost you your job? See, Levi sees Jesus and hears him and he abandons the story that he's living in order to enter the story that Jesus is writing. Because he sees that it's a better story, right? The story that Jesus is living is just better. It's better than what he's living And maybe you have a kind of understanding today of Jesus where you just kind of think to yourself, you know, I'll hang on to the things that I want and I'm going to add a little bit of Jesus to it. Right? But maybe you haven't really exchanged what you want for what Jesus wants in your life and in the world. You haven't asked him what he wants, what he wants you to hang on to and what he wants you to let go of so you'll be free to hang on to him. See, will you do that as a disciple See, if Jesus is really summoning you to be a disciple, then don't tease yourself into thinking that he only wants to be added to your life. He wants you to surrender it entirely so he can lead you in a new one. See, disciples of Jesus have a new priority on their heart by which every other decision is measured. See, this isn't rearranging the furniture so the room looks kind of nice and neat. It's actually a whole remodel around Jesus as the center. And and this is, by the way, it's every bit as true for a disciple who's been following Jesus for 30 years as it is for someone who's just now thinking, I'm going to trust Jesus and follow him. He's constantly calling us to recenter all things around him. And that's how you know you're called, because the call is marked by a priority. 
It isn't a sense that, well, I didn't believe in Jesus and now I do. It's a sense that he has to be the most important thing, that he's ultimate, and that his relationship with me is so ultimate, everything else takes a back seat. Can I get some amens? You are deader than 9 a.m., and that is weird to me and making me very insecure. So, all right, jump in with me a little bit, all right? So, now Levi, he abandons his life. Um, as, as the tax collector, his old life, and he begins a new one of discipleship, right? One marked by a very clear call and a priority on his life. And you would expect that when God comes into your life and he begins to clean it up, that along with that would mean leaving all of your old associations and all of your old bad company, right? We would expect that maybe when you clean up your life with God, you clean up the company that you keep. But as the story goes... It's not so. All right? Let's check it out. Verse 29. And Levi made him, that is Jesus, made Jesus a great feast in his house, in Levi's house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. So not only does Levi do the opposite of what you think maybe should be happening right now, Right? He, he, does, he, he also has Jesus right there with him. Like Jesus is the guest of honor in this situation, hanging out with the most corrupt people in the area. Now you need to understand a couple things about this environment of uh, their culture. You see, um, first of all, um, Levi has met and joined with Jesus. Okay, so he's throwing a party, not as a tax collector. This isn't Levi the tax collector throwing a party. This is Levi the disciple throwing a party for tax collectors. Okay, so this is a, this is important. But as he does so, he throws a giant banquet or a feast. And that makes sense because when you meet the Messiah, you should party, right? Because the Messiah is going to throw a banquet to end all banquets. It's going to put great Gatsby to shame. And we're going to look at that in Luke chapter 14. But you have a ways until we get there. So hang on for the right? But this little party that Levi throws is a sign. It, it, It looks forward. It foreshadows what Jesus will ultimately achieve for the whole world. A place at his table and the great feast, the great banquet that is to come. But to eat with someone, to recline at the table, is a profound affirmation of a relationship. At least in the first century, and I would say so now, too. You eat with people you want to be with. And so Jesus is symbolizing, in this meal, his radical acceptance of Levi's friends. Right? It, it is not a way of affirming their tax collecting practices, but it is a way of accepting them radically to bring them into a new life of discipleship. So who you ate with, by the way, defined who your community was. That, that was your people, the people that you ate with. And, and the other thing you need to understand about this is that there, no good Jew would ever eat or dream of, of associating with these kinds of people that Jesus is accepting radically in this meal. You see, a tax collector, by default, was an unclean person. They dealt with the money of Gentiles. They came into contact with the, the filthy Gentiles. And it would make them ritually unclean. And they, they, they collaborated with Rome. And that just added insult to injury. And so these folks were off limits to good faithful Jews. And if you go back and you read Leviticus, you run into all kinds of interesting dietary laws that were about cleanliness for the community. And if you kept the clean and dietary laws, you would never end up able to eat with a pagan. 
It was a safeguard from getting influenced by the gods of the nations and the ways of the pagan people. So the Pharisees here, they're not just being religious jerks, right? They're trying to obey Torah. They're trying to follow Scripture. And in modern life, the people we eat with are hugely influential. We're shaped by the people we do meals with, aren't we? I mean, think about what you talk about at a meal. Did you talk about news and weather? No, you talk about what's important on your heart. You sit in personal space close to each other. Meals are shaping moments for us. It's a very personal space. And so this huge scandal to the Pharisees is that for these religious law keepers who keep all the food laws, they now find Jesus upending all of that. He's dining with sinners, and he's their guest of honor. And apparently he's okay with it. He's not freaked out. So what does all this mean for us? It shows us that being a disciple of Jesus means leaving a life that was far from God, but it does not mean leaving people who are far from God. See, I'm going to say that again. Being a disciple of Jesus means leaving a life that was far from God, but it does not mean leaving people who are far from God. See, being a disciple fosters not only a new priority, but a new proximity where we don't abandon the world, but we actually dine in it and with it. Where we eat with people who are sinners. Because sharing a meal and in this personal space with people without the hope of the gospel is the best way for people to begin to get a sense of the gospel and its hope through the hospitality and the stories that are shared over a meal. Because look, when you follow Jesus, right? When you follow Jesus, you realize that you don't become a sinner by association. Sin was happening in you already, right? You didn't need anybody else to help you out. You had it down. At least I did. Apparently you guys didn't. What is going on with you? Give me a nod. Okay, so, right? And so you realize becoming a sinner is not an association thing. It's a soul thing. And instead, you're actually called now to bring grace to each relationship, to bring Jesus to people in places that don't know him. And so you can do that by refusing to caricature people and go, oh, those people. You can, you can move into these relationships by choosing not to make people projects, but to see them as people and hear their stories and relate as another person. To refuse to freeze them in their worst moments. What if somebody did that to you? What if they just froze you in time and said, oh, that's who you are. There's no chance for redemption or growth in you. No, that's not what the gospel does. The gospel breaks all that up apart, doesn't it? And so we need to learn to do what Levi does. I think at the heart of what Levi is doing, is I think he's sharing his joy. Why else throw a party? See, he's throwing a party because he has joy to share. You know that you do this, right? You share your joy. It's your default MO. You share your joy. You say things to your friends like, you'll never guess what kind of a deal I got on Amazon this week. That's your joy. And you share it, don't you? I, we had the best burger in Portland. You have to go try this best burger in Portland, right? You share the things that bring you joy. And when Jesus is the substance of that joy, guess what? You share it, don't you? You share your joy. And so that's what Levi does. He invites him into a context where he can show his joy in an appropriate way. 
And so you might think, hey, well, Jesus saved me from all that stuff and from all those people. And now I have this awesome reprieve from sinners here at church. Well, if you've been coming to church long, you have realized that you have just moved from hanging out with sinners in one place to hanging out with sinners in another, haven't you? The only thing is that now we're a bit more explicit about it. Yes, we need help. And so the story tells us that when you become a disciple of Jesus, you are actually signing on to join in his mission. See, When Jesus calls you to be his disciple, this is not a ticket to heaven. It's actually joining in heaven's push into the world. Do you grasp that this morning? See, following Jesus isn't about retreating from the world. But it's actually, uh, it's a rejection of saying, God's called me into this sanctified bubble, right? And instead it says, I am following Jesus so that I can live to help other people follow Jesus. See, disciples make disciples. And notice that Levi does not invite a bunch of people to come hear Jesus' podcast. Okay? He does not come, don't, it's not come and hear a sermon. He invites his friends into his house. Sermons are great, but he shares a meal. Because a, a meal confers acceptance. It, it's a moment that says, we have a relationship. And a meal produces conversation and dialogue. And it's a context where grace and truth can intersect. It's familiar turf to his friends. And he brings Jesus to them. It's about proximity. See, Jesus' disciples make disciples. And, and you know you're a disciple when you know his call in your life and he has priority in your life. And you know you're a disciple when you are invested in the work of making disciples. But guess what? You cannot make a good disciple unless you share proximity with people who don't know Jesus. You can't, you can't make, have a disciple-making life when you don't share proximity with people who are far from God. And this is one of those things that we love to see happen in our community groups. It's one of our main DNA points in community groups. We say, we want every group to begin to embrace the mission of God together, where meals can become occasions where your friends can become radically accepted by the people of Jesus, where, where Jesus can begin to make sense in the context of community. Are you sharing meals with people? Are, are you sharing personal proximity with people? People who don't yet know Jesus. You see, my wife and I were really convicted about this about a year, year and a half ago. And um, you see, it's really easy in the church to have all of your time consumed by good, God-honoring ministry and relationships with Christians. And um, there's like double the number of you in this church. And as a pastor, it gets really easy to get sucked in to really good things with only Christians, right? And so we begin to feel like we have got to break through the bubble because we're getting bubbled and it's making us not good, right? We're missing a component of our discipleship right now in this phase of our life. And so very quickly you begin to realize that the people in your proximity are all Christians. And so we made a decision at the beginning of last school year, Penny was starting kindergarten, right? And so we said, let's embed ourselves in our school, right? It's a public school. Let's embed ourselves like missionaries, not in a creepy way, but we just said, let's ask the question, what does good news look like in this context? And let's just listen to the community and figure out what it means to be good news people here. And so 
Um, one of the things they need is volunteers in the classroom. And so I take Fridays off generally. And so Lauren and I just took turns every Friday volunteering in the classroom. And so that was the day we just said, let's invest it into this, this group of students and their parents and be helpers. And guess what? We just loved it. It was a place we had fun. We enjoyed getting to know people for who they were. There was no sense of a rush to create a project that was awful and repulsive to us anyways. We just said, let's get in there. Let's be Jesus-y. And like, let's let the Holy Spirit do the rest. And guess what? Over the course of a year, lots of conversations began to happen, particularly with my wife. Like People would talk about, like, well, I've been thinking about Jesus. Can you tell me about him? Who says that? They did to my wife. And it was awesome. So, and those kinds of things begin to happen when you share proximity intentionally. And guess what? We learned a ton. And we're still learning a ton. And we have no idea. We don't have it all figured out. But guess what? It takes intentionality and it takes openness to say, you know what, God, I'm going to go wherever it is that you're calling me to go. But I know as a disciple of Jesus, it's going to involve proximity to people who don't yet know Jesus. So do you share proximity intentionally with people? Or maybe you're just kind of annoyed by the proximity that you share with people. And you're like, gosh, ugh, I wish they would go away. Maybe God has called you to them. To be an, a redemptive person in their life. To radically accept them and call them to a life of following Jesus. See, maybe you're saying to yourself today, um, you know what? That's great. Jesus can go to a party like that. He can associate with people like that. No problem, because he's Jesus. Right? He's like super person. He can do anything. Well, look at the text. Right? You think, oh, that's not for me. That's just kind of for Jesus. Uh, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his... Who? What's the word? Who's reading it with me? Grumbled at who? His disciples. Thanks, Tom. He grum- they grumbled at his disciples and said, Why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? See, some, sometime after the event, the Pharisee crowd, the religious law-keeping elite, says to the disciples, not Jesus, but the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, it was a part of their mission. It was part of their training as disciples to share in Jesus' mission. See, they're with Jesus in this environment. And if you want to say, hey, Jesus is my master and all, but... I don't really need to join in his mission, then you're really saying, he isn't my master. Okay? Because to be his disciple means you join him in his mission. Okay. Now, now that we've kind of seen what it means to follow Jesus, right? that it involves a call and a priority, and, and to join in his mission requires proximity, how do we actually find the ability to carry that out? How do we do it? How do we live it out? Well, there's two things I think this text shows us. First of all, you you have to see and grasp who Jesus is. The Pharisees and the scribes asked an important question. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? What do you think the Pharisees are concerned about here? I think they're concerned about contamination. Okay, contamination works like this, and it's worked this way for all history. Um, Sick people come in contact with healthy people, and healthy people become... Sick people, right? Healthy people don't infect sick people with health, do they? That never happens. I got sick this weekend thanks to KidFest. I came into contact with kids. Who got in contact with my kids? Who got in contact with me? And now I feel awful. 
Because that's the way it works, right? Contamination is a one-way street. And so the Pharisees see this situation and they look at Jesus' contact with the morally and spiritually contaminated and they think, what in the world is this rabbi doing with the unrighteous? What's the holy doing in the presence of the unholy? Well, you see, that's who God is. Right? God comes in all of his holiness to the unholy place and brings redemption. You see, the Pharisees are afraid of contamination, but Jesus, in the last story we read, he has just done something very radical. He's reached out and touched a leper, something you never did because of fear of contamination. And he actually reaches out and he touches him and the guy becomes clean on the spot. See, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, nothing. Nothing can make me unclean, and anything and anyone I touch, anyone I connect with, anyone I have relationship with, no matter how defiled you feel, no matter how, what your record is, no matter what you've done, no matter how ashamed you are of yourself, no matter what has been done to you, no matter how stained you feel, no matter how low you feel, no matter how guilty you are, I make you clean instantly. Right? That's what Jesus is saying here. And so why is that? It's because of who Jesus is. Jesus answers them and says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. See, I've come to call not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. See, Jesus is saying this, I am the one physician who can't get sick. You can't defile me, Jesus is saying. My holiness will overcome your sin. I'm not another religious leader who's going to tell you that by obeying a bunch of rules, you're going to become fit for God. I make you fit on the spot. I'm cleanliness itself. I'm fitness itself. And when you come into a relationship with me, infection begins to work in reverse. The clean begins to infect the unclean with cleanliness. That's who Jesus is. And when you see that, that this is the one you trust, that this is the one you follow, what that does for you is you you look at who he is and what he's done and you realize he has absorbed into himself the worst about you, the worst about me. He's secured you by his death on the cross. He's the one physician who says, you can't make me sick and yet I will choose to absorb all the sickness and disgusting implications of all the sin and evil and unrighteousness in the world and I will take it into myself and deal with it justly on a cross. And when you see that, you get humble and you get confident and you're able to move into the world very differently. You see, when you trust what he's done for you, you don't need to secure yourself or fear that people will infect you with spiritual uncleanness because he's saying to you, look at what happens when you come in contact with me. I take your stains. Do you know you have stains, by the way? That they're they're subtle and big things that stain us before God. It's the little self-righteous things. It's also the big life that just says, I'm going to be independent from God. I don't need God. These are stains on us. And he says, look, I'll take your stains and I'll make you clean. I'll take your guilt and I'll make you justified. I'll take your fear and I'll make you empowered. So you can move into the world with the same kind of non-condescending confidence that Jesus has in that moment because you came into contact with him, with his love and his grace and it undefiled you. It cleaned you. And through your love and your grace and acceptance through the presence of Christ in you, through the Spirit, people come into contact with Jesus and His power. And it transforms and it brings cleansing and forgiveness. But look, you can't grasp who Jesus is accurately unless you grasp who you are. 
See, this only happens when we grasp that we need him ourselves. See, Jesus says that he's not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. See, he's being sarcastic here because Paul says in Romans 3 that no one is righteous, not one. So those who think, I'm righteous on my own, I'm fine on my own, are delusional, Jesus is saying, right? I I, I have no interest in those who are self-righteous. Right? That means Jesus isn't interested in you if you're confident that you're fine on your own. Well, sure, he's interested in you, but he won't be able to clean you or forgive you or do much for you if you're convinced that you don't need anything, particularly forgiveness and cleansing. And so that's to stand on your own self-justifying goodness and to say, I'm fine. And it's very easy for us to think like that. I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm not poor in spirit. I'm middle class in spirit. Right? I'm doing okay. I'm not wealthy in spirit, but I'm middle class. I got it. Right? And once you get to that place, it's very easy to start looking down on everybody else. See, something happened to me this week. Um, I dropped my phone out of my pocket in a meeting, and um, as it fell onto the ground, it fell screen first onto the concrete, and it shattered. And my whole uh, iPhone-loving life, I have looked at other iPhone owners and, uh, with cracked screens similar to mine, and I have thought, moron. Uh, uh, I've always thought that. I've like, literally thought, only an idiot would let that happen to their screen. Surely, I am not that kind of idiot. Well, guess what I found out this week? I'm a moron. I'm an idiot. So like, somebody said, so did you have a case? Like, no, I don't like them. Well, okay. See, and I drop it all the time. And I had avoided this catastrophe until now. But here I am, a moron. And so there it is. There's this attitude that says, I'm different. I'm different than all those other people who are morally inferior to me. As soon as you do that, though, you, you set aside your need for Jesus. You disconnect yourself from any sense of needing the physician. And so you don't realize that you're actually meant to be cleaned up yourself and that contamination works backwards through him when you come into contact with him. And that you actually, because you've come into contact with him, now have something to offer to everyone else. See, be the kind of person this morning that sees yourself accurately, as one who's in need of the physician. And so, here's the thing, when you see yourself accurately, and when you see Jesus for who he is, you find yourself motivated in a whole new way to follow him as your consuming priority, because you love him, because he's your joy, because you see what he's done for you. And because, and when he's your joy, you share your joy, don't you? And, and so you become someone who moves into proximity with other people. And you're motivated to share in a humble but confident way the good news of who Christ is. And so it moves you towards people to bring the same hope that you need. And so you end up both on the same page of receiving his love and his grace. And so today we're going to move to the table. We're going to take communion together as we worship God. And, and there's something that you can do here at the table. It's a great environment to do a couple of things this morning. First of all, it's a great place to repent, friends. It's just a good place to leave behind something today. Maybe there's a part of your life that just it doesn't fit with Jesus' way, with Jesus' mission. And come to the table and leave it at the feet of Jesus. Right? Don't try to get fit before coming to him, to prepare yourself for him. Come to him as you are and let him 
bring his grace into your life and motivate you to leave different. Recenter your priorities around him. Repent of the priorities that are second rate at best, but that need to be moved out so that you can recenter your life around Jesus so that he is the driving force. It's also a great place to listen, to come before God, to take the bread and the cup and to listen and ask him, God, are there other people that you want me to be sharing proximity with? Are there people that you're calling me to share your, my joy with? All right? uh, uh, is there a place you're calling me to join you on your mission or that you already have that I need to pay more attention to? And lastly, it's a place to recline with Jesus this morning. It's a place to just sit in the presence and revel in the fact that He, the Holy One, the Lord of all, accepted you, that he calls you to his table, he reclines there with you because he loves you. You matter to him in a profound way and that he is yours and that, that this meal foreshadows one that's coming. You eat it remembering and looking forward as well to the fact that one day he'll set all things right and This is because of his radical love and grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the table and all it means. And we ask your spirit to help us there. To listen to you and obey you because we believe you and trust you. and Radically want to orient our lives around you. So thank you, Lord, for all that this table represents. The body of Christ given for us. Thank you for the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins. We take the cup in remembrance of you and proclaim your death is for us, for our benefit here today. Thank you that you are also the risen and exalted Lord. We walk out confident that your spirit lives in us, creating new life, new priorities, new mission. We want to join you in it confidently. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, come and take the bread and the cup on your own, at your own pace as we worship the Lord together. Thanks.